0: We are so glad that you are here. If you're visiting today, thank you so much for coming. If you're a regular tender or member, thank you for coming. Hope you guys all had a wonderful 4th of July. Um, Judy and I certainly did. Uh, We did something last year that we liked so much, we decided to do it again this year. And that is we caught the train in Carbondale and went up to Chicago and spent the night in the hotel there. Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, came home Saturday on the train, had a great time. Especially the 4th of July was just incredible. Um, you know, we walked around town and all that was going on. You, know, you could hear the buzz of the city going on and uh, thousands of people, of course. And uh, that night, um, we went to a concert. Uh, it's really cool. One of the great things about a big city is they have this, this huge pavilion and um, they had the, the orchestra there and they played patriotic music and it was Awesome. They handed out little flags and everybody's waving their flags. And it was just an incredible experience. It really was. And then we went back to our hotel and it was really cool. God blessed us with a room um, that that faced the Navy P- Pier on the 32nd floor. And so we sat there and opened our window and watched the fireworks from our hotel room. Now, that's pretty stinking cool no matter how you lay it out. It really was. And it's just an incredible thing. It really was great. And uh, here's the deal, though. Here's why I tell you. Tell you that, just to tell you what we did on 4th of July. There's a reason why, and that is this. You know, we woke up the next morning, I woke up before Judy, and, and I was watching the news and found out that that, that night um, at Navy Pier, a couple of guys flashed gang signs, you know, at one another. A fight broke out, and three people were stabbed, seriously wounded. And uh, then someone threw some firecrackers into a crowd. And there was a stampede, and over well over a dozen people were injured in that. And then the third story that they showed was that on the 4th of July, you know, 13 people were shot and one was killed on the south side of Chicago. And you see, the, you see the coolness of a large city and you see the things you get to enjoy, but then you're reminded of the culture and how difficult it can be in a place like Chicago. But here's what I wanted to tell you. I, once we got back home, and I think it was Saturday night after we got home, Judy said, oh my, you know, we made a list we didn't want to make. And I said, well, what is that? Well, George Barna, and that's just a huge um, research organization, well-respected organization, did a national survey, and based on 16 questions, and I won't bore you with the 16 questions, but they were all spiritual questions uh, designed to gauge the spirituality of the culture. And what they did was they list the top 100 post-Christian communities or areas in the nation. Okay, you might say that they they listed the top 100 spiritually dark areas in the nation. And of course, the ones that you would expect were there, but there's one that you would not expect to be there, and it was us. Um, Take in your mind, okay, take in your mind. Start in Paducah, go over to Cape Girardeau, go up to Mount Vernon, and then come down by name to Harrisburg, Illinois. Got that area? That is the 80th darkest spiritual area in the nation. Let yeah, wow! Just you know, post the 80th post-Christian area in the entire nation I told Judy I said even if the list was a hundred it doesn't matter the fact that Harrisburg Illinois was listed as a pivot point for the one of the darkest areas in America spiritually was just mind-boggling and I tell you that say there is a great need for Christ in our area you know it, it's needed in Chicago there are parts of Chicago that are very dark but I want you to know that where you live is a spiritually dark area It is a post-Christian era. And you may say, what is post-Christian? It simply means this, that the culture has moved past Christianity and started embracing the core values of an unchristian community. And that is the area that you live. And that should be a great motivating factor for us to be the lighthouse that God has called us to be um, as a church. Would you say amen to that? Amen to that? So here we are. So here we are. So I decided I would pose a question today. And here's the question: So um, I'm past the child-bearing age. I never was in the child-bearing age. <laughs> my wife is past the child-bearing age, and I'm past the fathering age. there we go. That works a little bit better. And so that this probably doesn't apply to me or the folks of my, of that, of my age. But if you're here today, and well, let's just put it this way if you're here and you've got younger children, you know whether it be two, three, five, ten, even twelve, 14, 15 years old. Or or to help us here, if you are a grandparent and you have grandkids that age, what kind of America, what kind of culture, what kind of country, what kind of community do you want those children or grandchildren? to grow up into. Now, that's it. because of what I just told you, because what we have a tendency to do, it goes, oh, Harrisburg's a town of, debatably, the sign says 9,100. A lot of people say that 8,000 8, right now, okay? But it's such a small town community, surely that doesn't apply to us. Well, we've already proven that wrong. It does. So what kind of community and what kind of culture and what kind of country do you want your children and your grandchildren to grow up in? And how are we going to help that to happen? Well, that's the whole thrust of this whole series. It's how we can be Christ to our community. It wasn't about political issues or non-political issues. It wasn't about picking a particular issue out um, or targeting anything in particular. It was about us and what we can do to be and help our country, our community, and our culture to be Christ's life. Christ-like. So that's what we want to do today. We want to take another look. Now, uh, Miss Linda came to me. Linda, um guest came to me and said, Oh, I wish i had sang this song today because last week our sermon centered around Second Chronicles seven fourteen and it was the power of, of repentance. And I said, Oh Linda, that's okay. It will fit right in this week as we transition. My wife Judy said, Well Dwayne, I'm a little confused. You talked about prayer last week and yet the sermon title today is The The Power of Prayer. How is that different? Well last week was very specific and pointed to the fact That we need to be a people and understand the power of repentance. That we got to understand the power of repentance of turning away from this and turning toward God. Okay? It's a change of attitude, it's a change of heart in the right direction. That's what repentance was. And when we talk about the power of prayer today, we want to talk about the, the power of praying for those in public office, but really even bigger than that. Okay? Now, here's what I discovered. Is that? And this popped in my brain. Did y'all know preachers have strange things pop in their brain while they're preparing sermons? We really do. But this one, the more I chewed on it, you know, the bigger it got. And here's what I wrote down on my sermon notes. You know, this might well be a sermon you love to hate. You know, there, there are topics in the Bible, there are sermons that just rub us the wrong way. And this might be one of those messages that you love to hate. And then I put, or at least hate to love. Now, what I mean is this. When, when there's a sermon that, that really, you know, we love to hate and it rubs us the wrong way. Really, we're talking about if a pastor is doing his job, it's really not a sermon about a sermon. It's about the text. And I have determined that there is a strong possibility that the text we're going to read today are some things that you might love to hate. And here's what I mean by that. There are certain things in the Bible um, that go crossways with our wants, our desires, and our opinions. That God's wants and God's desires and God's opinion runs crossways to ours. And we simply, I know hate's a strong word, but to make the parallel work, to make, to make the analogy work, love, hate, I had to use that word. But again, honestly, frankly, you wouldn't use the word hate when you when you disagree with God's word, when you go crossway with his opinion. You may not use the word hate, but isn't that when you say, no, God, isn't that kind of like hate? It really is. It really is. And then the second part where it says, or at least hate to love. And that's that point where you go, boy, I don't like that, or boy, I don't agree with that, but, and under under pressure, you give in and say, okay, God, you know, you might be right. I, you know, I found out there's a, whole, there's a whole chunk of the Bible that falls in this category. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, there's chunks of the Bible like John three sixteen. Well, we are, we are enamored with John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We like that. We can say it's a sermon that we love to love. But there's so much because of who we are as human beings, as broken people, there's so much of it that goes contrary to what God's opinion is. And we're going to have to determine. We are just going to have to determine, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to continue to rebel against God and say, no, God, I disagree with that? Or are we going to finally figure out that God is God and we're not, and he's smarter than we are, and we need to listen to what he's got to say? So we're going to look at several topics today um, that may cause us to say it's a topic, it's a scripture, it's a passage that we love to hate. We just go head-to-head with God on Or at best, it may be something we say, well, you know, we hate to love. I don't agree with it, but we, that's where it is. And it starts out with the first scripture today is what about prayer? What about prayer? Since we're talking about the power of prayer, what about prayer? And, you know, our first thing is we go, oh, yeah, I, I, I like prayer. Prayer's a good thing, okay? But when we start looking honestly at what the Word of God says about prayer, and later on, we're going to get a, a section here, and we're going to get a section about midway. Okay, that's pretty difficult, all right? So let's take a moment and let's look at two guys. Um, James, remember James? He was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus, okay? Let's take a look at him. And then let's take a look at the Apostle John, okay? And he was, he was exiled to Patmos. He's only, there are two people that weren't martyred of the 12, two, two disciples. One was Judas. He killed himself, okay? And John. The other 10 all were murdered by the state. Which is, by the way, don't play a big role. Don't forget what I just said. Uh, We're murdered by the state. So so we got John, the apostle, and we got James, the half-brother of Jesus. Let's see what they say about prayer. In James chapter 5, verse number 16, and almost instantly we're going to go crossways. Almost instantly we're going to disagree with God. Almost instantly we're going to have angst in our spirit. Almost instantly we're going to go, I don't think I like that part. And you know how come I know that? Because we don't do it. We don't know. Look what he says. This is the uh, Christian Standard Bible Version, James 5.16. Therefore, now, now the big picture is, in case you want to know, and it started in verse uh, 13 of chapter 5. You know, you know, James starts talking about you know, if you're sick, you can call the elders and have them pray over you. And, and in that context, he, he starts talking about forgiveness of sin. And the implication is definitely that the illness may well be caused by sin. That's something to think about. Okay? So that's the the opening context. But then he jumps in with this and says, Therefore, okay, confess your sins to one another. Anx. Anx. Let me just tell you something. I ain't confessing my sins to you because I wouldn't have a job tomorrow. Okay? Preachers, Preachers who confess their sins are called something. Unemployed unemployed, all right? So, so we're not going to do that. But but, it, doesn't that cause an angst in our spirit? Instantly, when we say, what do you mean? Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean I'm going to go to church Sunday, and there's going to be a part of the service where I get to confess my sins in front of people? Hello, I've got a problem with that. And that's where, again, James clearly says, confess your sins, your faults, one to another, and we have an angst with that. But you understand the power of that? You understand what would happen in church Besides riots, um, you you know, you understand what would happen in church if all of a sudden we were so authentic and so real that we could do that? I mean, how crazy would it be? How crazy good would it be if at the invitation time we we could come up and say, you know, I felt anger at my brother this week. You know, my wife and I have have butted heads this week. And I need to publicly confess that to you. Now, now again, keep in mind, you know, this, this goes as far, you know, public sins need public confession. Private sins can be done privately, one-on-one. But the bottom line is, is we're confess our sins to one another. Hey, 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 let me ask you a question. How would it impact you, okay, if you knew, if you knew that when you sinned, you'd have to confess that to that person? If you said you were going to gossip about somebody... How would it change your approach to that sin if you knew, no option, if you knew you had to go to that person and say, listen, I gossip about you, and I need to tell you I'm sorry. You think it would would slow down the sin process a little bit? Would it? Absolutely it would. So there's real power, even though we have an angst with it, even though we're crossways with it because it makes us feel very uncomfortable, there's something there. Confess your sins to one another, and then just pray for one another. Pray for one another pray for one another you know I told God this morning you know know something I take for granted I'm going to ask you to raise your hand but there is a chunk of this congregation that prays for me and Brent and David every single day I often wonder how God keeps me from doing stupid and you know I know I figured it out it's you It's you offering godly prayers up for your pastoral staff that keeps us from doing stupid most of the time. Most of the time. There's real power in that. So I want to pause on behalf of Brent and David myself and just say thank you if you're one of those people who pray earnestly for your pastoral staff every day. Thank you so much for that. But we need to expand that and learn to pray for one another. Pray for one another. Lift up one another in prayer. Now, he goes on and says this. He says, pray for another that you may be healed. I already told you in verse 13, there's an implication that the sin calls to physical illness. But you know what I know? There's more than physical illness involved here. There's anger and bitterness and jealousy. There are things, emotional sickness, insecurities. All those things, confess one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Heal. It changes the complexity of the whole deal. It really does. Then he goes on and says this. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Now this is where the rubber starts meeting the road. Okay. Now, you want the good news? The good news is every one of you who knows Jesus Christ as Savior is righteous. When you trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He imputed, He put on your account His righteousness. Come on now, that is good. That's how you're going to heaven. See, you thought God had His tenants board up there, and every time you went to church you got a check mark, and when you get enough check marks, you get to go to heaven? No, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. But what does work is this: when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you know he who knew no sin. Became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ. So, so we have His righteousness on us. That's how we. That's how we go to heaven. So, positionally, we are all righteous. That's cool. That gives us, by the way, in my opinion, that gives us a passport to prayer. Prayer here, you know, God hears the prayers of His kids. Okay. If Rebecca were to come to me and say, hey, Dad, I need this, I would listen to her differently if Trenton, as much as I love Trenton, came to me. Because Trenton belongs to Brynn. He doesn't belong to me. See, Becca's mine. And so I hear her request differently than I I do a person or a child who belongs to someone else. Okay? So that's good. It gives us a passport to prayer. Okay? But involved deeper than that is not only positional righteousness, but practical righteousness. Practical righteousness, okay? I, I gotta tell y'all this is bad news. I just looked and the timer's not working. I can preach for two hours and I would never know. You if you're a person of prayer, now's the time. Now's the time. Be lifting that up. Be lifting that up. Okay? So so here we are. So so we had this practical righteousness. In other words, that a person, you know, the prayer of a righteous person who practically lives out their faith. What does that look like? Um, it means they're not perfect, okay, um, but they all their known sins are confessed. They keep their sin list very, very short. Um, they're completely committed to the cause of Christ and the kingdom. And, and, and their desires are God's desires. Their desires are God's desires. And that is so big in prayer. That's so big in prayer. Because again, prayer is not about me changing God's mind, it's God changing my mind. It's not my will getting done in heaven, it's God's will getting done on earth. You need to learn that. I know, I know. You watch the TV preachers, and they all tell you that just ask anything in Jesus' name and bam! Doesn't matter what God thinks, you got it. Shazam, there you go. That's not in the Bible, it's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is what we're going to look at right now in James and then in 1 John. And will change the way that we pray. Okay? And by the way, that may be a crossroads for you. That may be one thing you put ahead. But no, God, I want you being that God that does whatever I want, whenever I want. And that's all that matters. And you may go crossheads for that. Okay? Now, here's what he says in verse 17, James chapter 5 verse 17. Elijah was a human being as we are. And he was. Now listen to this. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again. And the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. Okay? Now this is a really great example of a righteous man. But if you don't look a little bit deeper than the surface, you may miss something, okay? He starts out by saying, you know, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. So it sounds like this. One day, Elijah got up and said, Them sorry Israelites, I've had it with them. Rain? yeah, I, I don't want you to think rain or dew, you know, like he's controlling the weather, Okay? For three and a half years. Do you really think Elijah had that kind of power? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So, what's going on here? Well, the, I think the answer is in verse 18. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, now here's what I wrote down If B is attributed to God, then A should be also. Now, B, we have. B is 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 18, 1. And it clearly says that God said to Elijah, Go and tell Ahab you know that's going to rain, and I will bring rain upon the land. Clearly, God directed Elijah. Elijah later prays, and the rain comes. What is the secret? God said. God said. So if that's true in, in B, it's certainly true in A. I'm sorry, I don't believe Elijah just woke up one day and decided it wasn't going to rain. He does say, you know, as the Lord speaks that I stand before you, it will not rain again until, my, until I say so. And his say so was when God said so. Okay, you see the power there? The power is, the power of Elijah's prayer was God's will being done. Guess what the power of your prayer is? The power of God's prayer being done. That's why he said in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful because a righteous person wants what God wants. Now, if you want to prove my point, just go home and pray to win a lottery. Good luck. Good luck. Ask God to help you be a good steward of your finances so that you won't feel financial stress. And that's a prayer God can and will hear. Okay? Now, prayer is so important in this whole big picture of our country. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, again, keep in mind, Roosevelt came in office, I believe, in 1932, and he was coming out of the Great Depression and heading into World War II in a few years. Here's what Franklin Roosevelt said. I ask that our people devote themselves in a a continuance of prayer. I wrote down a concert of prayer. Um, As we rise to each new day... And again, when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips. Well-spoken President Roosevelt. May our people have a continuance of prayer. As we start each day and as we end each day, may prayer be on our lips. Well, what kind of prayer? What kind of prayer? Well, again, now we're going to look at what the Apostle John says. In 1 John five fourteen. he says this. This is the confidence. God wants you to have a confident prayer list. God wants you to have a confident prayer life. This is the confidence we have before him. One, if we ask anything. That's what I was waiting on. Come on with it. Say it again, preacher. Okay, I'll say it again for you. I'll say it again for you. If we ask anything. Woo! Part two. If we ask anything according to his will. Part three. He hears us. That's different, is it? If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And by the way, just check this out. This is throughout the script. This is not me random picking a, a scripture on prayer. This one just has to be crystal clear. Okay? If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And since we know that He hears whatever we ask when we pray that way, we know that we have what we ask, ask of Him. So if you want a vibrant prayer life, we've got to learn to pray, Father, Thy will be done. Now... Dwayne, by now you're going, <clears throat> can you tell me what this has to do with our country? Absolutely. Because we've got to learn to pray, God, what do you want to happen in America? Not what do you want to happen in America. We've got to ask God, God, what do you want to do? And to be willing to allow Him to do what He wants to do. Now, we're going to look at, if we get time, and again, I really don't have a timer, so I mean I'll, I'll try to watch it. Um, I know I try to value your time. Um, But we're looking at three guys. And I think they're very unique guys. One is Peter. Okay? And of course, we're going to look in 1 Peter for that. Uh, Peter was a common man. He was the blue collar worker. He was a fisherman by trade until Jesus called him. Okay? Uh, Didn't have a college degree, didn't go to seminary, just spent three years with Jesus, and that's it. Okay? That's who he was. Who was? The common man. But then you've got Paul. And I called him the zealous man, the zealous man. And and Paul was a theologian, a very intelligent, very well educated. Okay, so you get that perspective. Then we're going to go back to the Old Testament if we have time and look at Jeremiah, who I called the impassioned man, and we see how God speaks through him, uh, to him, and through him in the writings in Jeremiah. So what does old Peter have to say? What does the blue collar worker have to say? Now, I need to warn you, this is where we're going to go crossways with God, okay? Now, again, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give you a caveat up front. As I studied this, Brian, have you ever done this before? As I studied this, I'm going, God, I'm not fully, I get, I'm not full, sure I fully get this, you know? I know for sure what it says, but I don't know what else it says. And it really is difficult. Here's what it says. The common man says in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, Be subject... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, be subject. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Now, now that word "subject" means to be in subjection to. Okay. Now, now, now it can also mean to be in submission to. Now, now we're going to grab something real quick, okay, to help us understand this. All right. In Ephesians chapter five, um, Paul comes around and says this. You know, wives. Be in submission to your husbands, okay? Now, I've taught you before, and again, straight out of the word, out of the Greek, is that word submission means to respect. It means to respect. So wives, respect your husbands. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. When he says be subject to, be in submission to, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human station, he's saying respect, respect. Now, I'm going to say something that you're going to hear about three different times this morning because we've got to get it into our heads. As you know, you know, throughout, no matter what level of politics you go to, it is filled with imperfect people, broken people. Many do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. Many do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. So we have government, okay, that is filled with broken people. And yet here is Peter Saying, be in subjection to, respect, for the Lord's sake, every human institution. Here's what I want you to get. I'm going to say it about three times. Okay? It's not about the person. It's about the institution. Peter isn't saying, respect Nero, respect Herod, okay? Respect Pontius Pilate. He's saying, respect the institution of government. That is true today. Um, It's interesting that in Romans chapter 12, when Paul writes, you know, I beseech you, I urge you to present your bodies. You know, it's funny that here in 1 Peter and also in Romans chapter 13, where we're going, it's a command. And when it comes to submitting our bodies to Christ, he says, I urge you. When it comes to this, he commands us. He commands us. Now, you say, well, Dwayne, see, that's easy to say because... You don't understand how bad it is today. No, you don't understand how bad it was then. My wife reminded me, you know, um, Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem because somebody decided they need to have a new taxation. So, they, now, of course, we know it's God's way to get them there, but the bottom line is that's how it happened. Okay? Then she reminded me, do you remember what Herod did? Herod, the government official, killed all the babies two years later. And younger, there were boys. It wasn't too much longer that, you know, 25 years later, they beheaded John the Baptist. It wasn't too much later that they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, Peter is looking back on all of that. And he says, he's not saying respect Herod. He's not expecting, say, respect Nero. But he does say this. Be, be subject, respect, for the Lord's sake, who's for the Lord sake, every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, regardless of what level it is, we are to respect the office of government. You may, <laughs> boy, I'm fixing to give you an understatement. You may not be able to respect the person in the office. But you can and should respect the office. Now, this played out really well in Acts chapter 4 and 5. You know, uh, Peter and John were, you know, healed somebody, and, and the Sanhedrin got all fired up and mad at them. You know, who are you? Who do you think you can come in in Jesus' name and heal all these people, you know? And, and so finally they said, Yes, well, listen here. You know, no longer can you preach in the name of this man. And Peter and John said, Oh, okay, well, we're supposed to submit to the government, so so we won't preach anymore. Is that what they said? No, said, so you decide whether we shall obey God or man, but we're going to obey God. See, you're not, you're not obeying individual, you're not submitting to individual laws. You're submitting to the institution of government. And and you say, well, join what, what if or but. Well, here's the what if or but. Anytime government... Steps outside the authority that God gave them, you don't have to obey them. Anytime that government steps outside the authority that God gave them, when the government says you can no longer worship Christ, you step out of that. When, when the government says you can't share Christ on the streets, like in Canada, you step outside of that. Judy went to London and could not share the gospel of Christ, you step outside of that. God is the, and we're going to hear it, God is the giver of authority. And when they step outside that authority, then the band is lifted. Okay? All right? You got that? You got that? Now, when it goes a little bit further, in 1 Peter 2.15, says this. For this is... Now, watch. Here, you fix the bill crossways. Fix the bill crossways. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. That by doing good, i.e., being subject to the authorities... For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Can I help you with something? The church gives all the ammunition the enemy needs to hurt the kingdom. We get on Facebook and spout off about this and spout off about that. We we leave Facebook and go to Instagram. We we talk to uh, the guys down at McDonald's have our little coffee shop thing going on there. We get out in our communities and talk, and we give the enemy all the ammunition they need. If we're going to to use the Bible term, if we're going to put to silence the foolish, the ignorance of foolish people, we have got to be godly people. Godliness silences the foolishness of man. Godliness silences the foolishness of men. We've got to learn this because we want to spout off. We want to spout off. And by the way, there might be times. It probably involves sharing Christ. But we need to. And he says it so clearly this is the will of God. This is the will of God. And, And get stronger. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up or as an excuse for evil, but living as servants of God. If we, want, if we want to see the impact of the kingdom in America, we have got to live as God's people. We've got to. We've got to. Um, verse 17. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. Respect Everyone. We saw so many homeless people in Chicago. It would be so easy to judge them. Get up and get a job. You spent this time rather than sitting there with your cup and going down and working at McDonald's, you know. Every person Christ died for, you know, black, white, rich, poor. And, and Peter says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God. Fear God. Reverence God. Reverence God. Reverence God. Don't go crossways with him. Reverence God. If God says, do it, we should do it. And God says, don't do it, we shouldn't do it. Reverence God. Honor the emperor. Now keep in mind, this is, this is before the great persecution. At this point, Nero is not taking Christians, hanging them on a pole, dousing them with tar, and setting them ablaze to light the streets. This is right before that. But like I said, one of the government officials killed all the babies two years old and younger that were boys. The government institution was a big player in the crucifixion of Peter says, and Peter says, and Peter says, as the word of God, honor the emperor. Honor Nero? Nope. Doesn't sign a name. It's the office. It's the office. See, we have got to relearn the power of respect. Parents, young parents, if I could teach you one thing today, if I could share one thing with you from my heart, is we have got to reinstitute respect to our children. We have got to reinstitute respect. I wrote down, thank you, baby boomers. That's me. I love to watch the historical shows on television. And recently, one of the networks, I can't remember which one it was, had a show on titled 1969 and went back and replayed the news clips, what was going on in 69, 68. It was huge opposition to the war in Vietnam, um, huge oppression of authority. It was big. It was bad. And it was my generation. And they had those people that were then given interviews and interviewed them this time. And it was amazing to see the same disrespect that they had as 18, 19-year-olds was still in their hearts there. I watched as the police were called pigs. I watched as the, the military, those that came back from Vietnam, were spit upon. I watched how, how government was totally disallowed. And was there plenty of ammunition for all that? Yes, there was, for the government part. Yes, yes. But you want to know why we have a generation that doesn't respect anything? Because we look back at 68 and 69, and we gave birth to that. And now it's our, listen, if you've got this silver hair thing going on, it's our responsibility to help teach respect again. You know, someone wrote, I picked it off the internet and said, among the values children should be taught are respect for others. Respect for others. Beginning with your own child's own parents. Beginning with, with family beginning with the symbols of our faith. Now, I don't want to. I do not want to go overboard with this. Okay, I'm not trying to reinstitute legalism. Did you know when we go to Africa, we're taught not to put the word of God on the ground? And guess guess who taught us that? The Muslims. They so value the Quran that's a high offense to them for any holy book to be placed on the ground. Do your kids know that this is not a coffee coaster? Do your children know this is not a coffee coaster? Something we set on the coffee table to put our drink upon? Do they know that? Have you taught them that? Have you taught them that this is the word of God and it should be valued? Have your children have your children learned about respecting the symbols of our country? The flag? The Christian flag? Have your children been taught to respect law and order? Law and order? Have they been taught to respect the property of others? Had they been taught to respect authority? A while back, I was watching the story of Jackie Robinson. I told you it's got some difficult language in it because of the period it was written. The N-word is very prevalent along with other language. But you probably need to watch it. It's a powerful historical film. As you know, Jackie Robinson was the first uh, African-American to play in major league ball. And in one scene, this kid loves the Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers. And so dad takes the little boy, and they're all excited, and they're just talking and gibberish, you know, and, oh, we're so excited. And then Jackie Robinson takes the stage, the field. And all of a sudden, all that stops, and there's all this booing and the most vile language that you can ever imagine. And this dad goes from being this, this dad who's Yay Dodgers to all this vomit coming out of his mouth, calling Jackie Robinson, all these horrible names. And the little boy looks up at his dad. And you know what happened, don't you? Instantly, out of his mouth came those same words. Are you teaching your children to respect people? To respect the symbols of our country? To respect the symbols of our faith? To respect property? To respect law and order? To respect authority? Rebirth that in your family because it is scriptural. It is scriptural. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Reinstitute respect into your family. Let's see if we can get Paul done this morning. Paul's the zealous man. And his big chapter is Romans chapter 13. And I know a lot of y'all are real big fans of Paul, and rightfully so. He wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. So what is this zealot? What's this zealot going to say about all of this? Okay? We had the common man. Let's see what the educated man says. He says this. In Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now keep in mind, oh by the way, no, keep in mind that in just a few years, Paul's going to have his head cut off by those governing authorities. Uh-oh, keep in mind, tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down by those governing authorities. Okay? Okay? So you probably don't have it that bad. Okay? So let every person be subject to the government authorities, for there is... N- Watch. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What? Told you this was hard. What? We There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? Now, again... Not the individual people. But the government is instituted by God. Now, anybody want to know why? Why did God give us government? Surely He was having a bad day. Come on, right? Surely He was... You know, if God ever made a mistake, it was when He gave us government. You know why? Sin. Chaos. Anarchy. Can you imagine as bad... (laughs) as bad as it seems sometimes. Can you imagine this country without government? Yeah. Can you imagine Chicago with no police force? It's whatever you want to do and when you want to do it to who you want to do it. Can you imagine living in Harrisburg and you've got bars on the windows and big bars and big locks on the doors but someone breaks into your house because there's no one to say it's wrong? There's no punishment? No, God gave us government Because he knew the chaos of sin. He gave us government to help in that. Okay? And therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. So when we refuse to submit to the government authorities, we're resisting what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. What? That's when I wrote down on my sermon sheet, I need to tell you, I don't fully understand, but I can't deny Please don't send me an email or a Facebook post about, I can't believe you said all that. I don't get it. I just know God does. There are things right now as I speak these words to you that go against me because I'm pushing back. But I cannot deny. I can't twist it. I can't make it say something different than what it does. You know, sometimes Paul is confusing, I wish this time he was. But he's not. It's crystal clear. But keep in mind, i say it again, he's not talking about a name. He's talking about an institution. Don't lose sight of that. Verse 13, or verse 3 of 13. For rulers are not a tarot to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an adventurer who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There again, because of sin and chaos, we have the authorities to help protect us. We know they're not perfect. We know it's pretty messed up sometimes. But God gave it to us. Let's move on down real quick to Jeremiah. This is where it gets so practical. Now, y'all know Lynn Felton was here last week? Yeah, she asked me a question. We're at the picnic, and she said, hey, we were studying with Andy Stanley, you know, on video, and he said that we should not use Jeremiah 29, 11 because it wasn't written for us. What do you think? I said, well, he's right and he's wrong, in my opinion. I said, he's right in the sense that Jeremiah 29.11 was written to the Israelite people, okay, coming out of bondage. He's wrong in the sense that the principles of Jeremiah 29.11 is are very applicable for our lives today. Okay, so you need to understand that. You've got to be careful, especially in the Old Testament, when you grab something, okay, Make sure that you're not grabbing a promise that's not yours to claim. It may be a principle, whereas you may not be able to claim the promise. Right. Here's what it says, though. In verse 7 through 9, says, God speaking to, through the prophet to the children of Israel, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Seek the peace. Now, they're in Babylon, okay, and they're in exile, and they're prisoners. But God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you out to exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's the point I want you to make. I want you to grab hold of that. God is the only hope for our culture. Again, it's not 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's not some address in Springfield. The hope is in God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope for America. That's why it's important that God's people live godly lives. Because ungodly people have no influence on society. Godly people do. Godly people do. And frankly, if we want a better, if you want to listen, if you want a better culture for your family to grow up in, hey dad, you want a better culture for your son, your daughter to grow up in? Begin by living a godly life yourself. Get into the book find out what the book says, and follow it, and follow it, and follow it. Because, again, a Christian Harrisburg is going to be a better place to live than an ungodly Harrisburg. And that's true El Dorado, Galatia, New York City, Chicago. It doesn't matter. The more godly a community, the better the community. And if you're waiting on city council to make this a godly place, you might be waiting a long time. Rise up, church. Rise up, church. Be the church. Be the lighthouse in our community. That I remind you, Judy, was on that list. 80th darkest place in America includes Harrisburg, Illinois. Not doesn't include Harrisburg, Illinois, it's a pivot point on the map that made that. So pray for the city. Pray to the Lord, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You know, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Some who might say something different. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And here's what you got to get. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. God has a clock. And the clock is ticking. Either A, it'll be a clock of judgment, it'll be a clock of revival, or it'll be a clock of the second coming. Either God's going to bring more judgment, God's going to bring great revival, Our God has taken His church home. One of the three. Can I have an amen on that? This is what the Lord says. When 70... See, some folks were going, it won't be 70 years, it'll be 30 years. Some people say, oh, well, let's just get the right man in the office and America will turn around. The right man is in the office. It's Jesus Christ. That's who it is. It's Jesus. This is what the Lord says. 70 years. I love, I, I stumbled upon this first. Isaiah 60, 22. I am the Lord, and when it is time, I will make these things happen quickly. God's, God's got his finger on this one. We just got to be God's people. We just got to be God's people. Mom and Dad, we've got to be godly parents. We have got to put God first. I see in our culture like never before. You know. The the thing with the sunny thing and sports going on, when families check out for two or three months at a time, that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing for what it's doing to your children, teaching your children about being godly. Think about that. Think about it. When when you sit around the table and curse or or put down authority, be careful. That's a dangerous thing that's happening. And here's that promise. And we can claim the principle of it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. If you're a child of God today, God's got plans for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I, I honestly don't know what it's going to be like in 15 years, 10 years, 5 years. I don't know. But whatever it is, God's bigger. You got a 7-year-old, 8-year-old, 10-year-old son? I don't know what it's going to be like in 5 years. But I know this. If you will pour God into their lives with everything you got, in five years, they'll be equipped to face that. The most important thing we can do for our children and our grandchildren is to pour God into them. Teach them respect. Teach them, teach them right and wrong. Teach them black. Get out of this gray muck and fog and teach them right and wrong. This is not a book of 50 shades of gray. This is a book of black and white. Pour it into their lives so they will know, they will know, they will know what to do. Let's bury it. Such a great responsibility is on our shoulders as followers of Christ. Oh, I know, boy. I know what we heard today. Some of it was crossways with us. It was crossways with the guy who said it. Me. I always like it when I can so clearly see exactly God's path. But I think about Peter saying, be subject to the government authorities... And then I think about Peter being crucified upside down by those same government authorities. I think about Paul's verse, words in verse in chapter 13. That every person, these subjects, the government authorities. And I see Peter or Paul with his head cut off. It will not be easy. Respect is often difficult. But there is such power in that. There's power in godliness. Let us be godly people. Now, if you're here today, and I I danced around it, but you heard a lot today about about Jesus and dying on the cross. And today, if you've never trusted Christ, first off, you've probably never heard anything like this before, just from what we heard about government and stuff. See, God's ways are different. In Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts and your thoughts declares the Lord. But if you're here today. And you want to know about this man named Jesus Christ who loved you so much he died for you and who has changed the lives of a lot of these people in this room, we'd be glad to share that with you. It'd be our honor to share that with you. My friend Brother Brent will be standing down front, just taking him by the hand, and say, hey hey Brent, I want to know this man named Jesus Christ. And moms and dads, it'd be a great time to just make a commitment to, to pray and ask God to give you the strength and courage to be godly moms and dads in these uncertain times. Teaching your children, teaching your children to love and to respect. Teach them the word of God that's black and white, not shades of gray. Grandma and grandpas. Grandmas and grandpas. Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of sharing these truths today. It's hard, God. I need to confess that. I'll confess it for these people and before you. But Lord, I cannot deny your word and I will not deny your word. I can't understand how Peter could write what he wrote outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I can't understand how Paul wrote what he wrote outside the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's no other explanation besides the fact it's the word of God. So thank you for that. Give us courage and give us boldness in these days that we Speak to hearts today in the various ways that you want to do that. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name.